Hello, Geraldine Doog with you this afternoon, and I'm honoured to be sitting in the chair to welcome you to Big Ideas. Over the next six weeks, I'll be hosting this Big Ideas Hour and introducing you each week to the headline event of the Radio National Year, the Boyer Lecture. This year, 2003, our Boyer Lecturer is Owen Harries with his series Benign or Imperial, Reflections on American Hegemony. So let me introduce you to Owen Harries before we start the Boyers as they're affectionately known. Owen Harries is a senior fellow at the Centre for Independent Studies in Sydney. He recently returned to live in Australia after many years in Washington DC, where he was editor-in-chief from 1985 to 2001 of the Washington-based foreign policy journal The National Interest. Now, prior to this, he's held a number of senior positions in Canberra as senior advisor to then Shadow Foreign Affairs Minister Andrew Peacock, as head of policy planning in the Department of Foreign Affairs, and as senior advisor to former Prime Minister Malcolm Fraser before being appointed Australian ambassador to UNESCO in 1982. Today's lecture, entitled And Then There Was One, looks at the vacuum that followed the death of the Cold War and at the United States, the accidental hegemon that found itself in a role with an unwritten script. In fact, he suggests no one, none of the specialists concerned, had foreseen the outlines of what we're living through right now. And we've programmed special music today by the great 20th century American composer Aaron Copeland. The theme music you're hearing is a taste of what's to come. Also in this Big Ideas Hour, a short story by Chinese writer Ha Jin about a Chinese family settling in the USA. So let's get going with the first lecture in our 2003 Boyer Lecture series with Owen Harris. A distinguished analyst of international politics, Martin White, once laid it down as a fundamental truth of international politics that great power status is lost as it is won by violence. A great power does not die in its bed. But 12 years ago, the Soviet Union, a state not exactly averse to violence, confounded all expectations by doing just that. It sickened, received some drastic treatment at the hands of Mikhail Gorbachev, and quietly expired without war or bloodshed. In doing so, it brought to an end an era of international politics, the Cold War era, which had lasted nearly half a century. While the end of that conflict was devoutly welcomed and celebrated, it was also disorientating. The Cold War had represented a remarkably simple and unambiguous state of affairs with a clearly designated enemy, long-standing allies, fixed strategies and a well-rehearsed rhetoric. Everyone knew their roles and their lines. Suddenly, with little time to prepare ourselves, we were deprived of all that. Now, twelve years on from the demise of the Soviet Union, what can we say about the character of the new era? Much has been written on the subject, and there has been a lot of bold theorising. But so far we have not been able to agree on a better name than the bland, contentless phrase, post-Cold War era, to identify it. Each era of international politics produces its own distinctive vocabulary in terms of which issues are defined and conceptualised and around which debates centre. 
In the 1930s, this vocabulary included such terms as fascism, appeasement, popular front, pacifism, and isolationism. In the Cold War era, we had containment, deterrence, mutually assured destruction, summitry, detente, and many others. Our new unnamed era, too, is developing its own distinctive vocabulary, one that's being added to constantly. Unipolarity, hegemony, exporting democracy, clash of civilizations, unilateralism, preemption, globalization, terrorism, etc., etc. It's around this set of terms that I've organized these talks, saving the last one for some reflections on their relevance to Australia. I'm going to begin with two terms that seem to me to be of definitive importance, unipolarity and hegemony. When the Soviet Union ceased to exist, it did more than bring the Cold War to an end. It also altered fundamentally the structure of the international political system. For the first three and a half centuries or so of its existence, that is, from about the end of the 16th century to the mid-20th century, that system had been a multipolar one, with five, six or seven great powers of roughly comparable strength, constantly manoeuvring for advantage. Then, from the mid-1940s until the end of the 1980s, it became a bipolar system, with the two superpowers, the United States and Russia, balancing each other in a protracted stalemate. And then, when one of those superpowers imploded, it became for the first time in its history a unipolar system in which one state dominated. The United States became a global hegemon. This was and is an unprecedented and fundamental change in the system, the implications of which are still working themselves out. Now, the word hegemony is not one that has had much currency until recently. Most of us are even unsure about its pronunciation. Should it be hegemony or hegemony, as most Americans prefer? Should the stress be on the first or the second syllable? I'll probably use every variation as I go along. What is really important is the meaning of the term. If, like me, you depend mainly on the concise Oxford Dictionary, you'll find that the only definition it gives is, in its entirety, leadership especially by one state of a confederacy. As far as its current usage in international politics is concerned, this is not very helpful. In the first place, hegemony has no necessary connection to confederacies, which are few and far between. In the second place, and more important, the term leadership is inadequate. Leadership can be acquired by election or acclamation or consent. It can be granted. But hegemony implies domination, not merely leadership. Domination resulting from superior power. In that sense, there have often been local or regional hegemonies, the Soviet Union in Eastern Europe, for example, or the United States in the Caribbean and later in the Atlantic Alliance. But there has never before been one that dominated the whole system. How fundamental a change this is, is indicated by the fact that one of the main themes 
Indeed, the main theme in the history of the state system has been the repeated and determined efforts of alliances of states to prevent any of their number from achieving world domination, even at the cost of long and bloody wars. Philip II of Spain in the 16th century, Louis XIV in the 17th and early 18th centuries, Napoleon at the beginning of the 19th century, the Emperor Wilhelm II of Germany and Hitler in the 20th century. Each tried for domination. Some got very close to achieving it for a while. All were eventually thwarted and millions were killed in the process. Then there is the interesting case of Britain. In all the cases that I've just cited, Britain played a prominent part in forming coalitions to balance and oppose the would-be dominant power, changing its allies as the challenges changed. Then, in the 19th century, Britain itself became very powerful. It dominated the world industrially, commercially and financially. Its navy ruled the seas. It had a vast empire and established a Pax Britannica in large areas of the world. All this has led some to claim that in the middle of the 19th century Britain had indeed achieved global hegemony. But in my opinion it's not a convincing claim, for Britain neither achieved nor sought to achieve dominance in continental Europe, which was the heart of the state system where things were finally decided. It never acquired the formidable land army that would have been necessary to exert such dominance in Europe. Indeed, the German Chancellor Bismarck used to say derisively that if the British army were to land on the North German coast, he would send a policeman to arrest it. During the time of their greatest power, the British followed a prudent policy of splendid isolation, keeping their distance from matters that didn't affect them seriously and not taking too assertive or committed a part in European affairs. They played the role of offshore balancer, aiming not at achieving hegemony, but at preventing any other states from doing so, while Britain itself dominated much of the rest of the world. So no, Britain in the Victorian era was not a true global hegemon. How have other states reacted to would-be hegemons and why? There have been two kinds of reactions. As I've indicated, the stronger states have joined together against the prospective hegemon, as England, Austria, Holland and Russia allied against the France of Louis XIV, or as France, England and Russia joined together to balance a very powerful and assertive Germany before 1914. On the other hand, weaker and more vulnerable states, or those that for some reason ethnic, cultural or ideological affinity, a history of past friendly association, have hopes that they may receive favourable treatment at the hands of the ambitious state, may opt to become its associates or accomplices. In the study of international politics, this is referred to as jumping on the hegemon's bandwagon. Balancing or bandwagoning, that is basically the choice for all those caught in the scope of the hegemon's ambition. But how can they know in advance the scope of that ambition? How can they know that a successful hegemon will endanger them? 
The answer is that they cannot know, but as a matter of prudence they must assume it. That is, they must assume that in a system of independent states, coexisting in a state of anarchy, without any superior authority to restrain them, or common loyalty to bind them, those who have the capacity to do so will dominate and exploit others who are weaker, and sooner or later will threaten their independence. As a wit summed it up, when there is no agreement as to which suit is trumps, clubs are always trumps. In this view of things, what are crucial are not the avowed intentions of the prospective hegemon, for these can change over time. What is crucial is its power. That is why states have, again and again, made common cause to resist the emergence of a dominant power. Now, this view of things might strike you as unduly cynical or pessimistic, an example of the kind of ultra-suspicious, self-fulfilling fear that characterises realpolitik and the Hobbesian view of international politics. And it may be that. But it's an interpretation of the motives and behaviours of states that has a long pedigree. It's to be found, for example, in the first great work of interstate politics, Thucydides' History of the Peloponnesian War, written some two and a half thousand years before Henry Kissinger put pen to paper. When Thucydides comes to discuss the cause of that war, he says that he'll begin by giving an account of the specific complaints and disagreements that Athens and Sparta had with each other. But he warns that these in themselves will provide an inadequate and misleading explanation of the conflict. And then, in an oft-quoted sentence, he gives what he considers the real fundamental cause. What made war inevitable was the growth of Athenian power and the fear which this caused in the Spartans. Why the fear? Because, as he puts it in another much-quoted sentence, the strong do what they can, and the weak suffer what they must. What they can, note, not what they might originally have intended to do. For unchecked power creates its own motives and sets its own agenda. As Alexander Hamilton put it in that great work of political theory, The Federalist Papers, to presume a want of motives for such contests as an argument against their existence would be to forget that men are ambitious, vindictive and rapacious, to look for a continuation of harmony between a number of independent, unconnected sovereignties situated in the same neighbourhood would be to disregard the uniform course of human events and set at defiance the accumulated experience of ages. The policy conclusion that follows from such an analysis was most succinctly put by another Greek historian, Polybius, in the form of a maxim. It is never right to help a power to acquire a predominance that will render it irresistible. Never right, that is, if a state values its own independence above all else. If it should value order or peace above all else, there might be a case for submitting to or aiding the prospective hegemon, for it might be able to provide those conditions once it was dominant. 
but that would be at the cost of one's independence and freedom of action. To say again, this is a maxim that most great powers have respected most of the time, often at great expense of blood and treasure. Against this background, let's now look at the emergence of the United States as a hegemonic power at the beginning of the last decade. The first point to make is that the United States became a hegemon not by deliberate effort, but inadvertently and by default. The default, that is, of the Soviet Union. One moment the United States was part of a bipolar balance, the next it was left as the one superpower in a unipolar, unbalanced world. It had not changed its policies or mode of behaviour to bring this about. Indeed, if anything, President George Bush Sr., by temperament a rather timid man, had watched the collapse of the Soviet Union more with apprehension than joy. The speed with which things changed meant that American hegemony was an accomplished fact before anyone had time to react to it or attempt to prevent it. Indeed, it took America itself some time to realise what had happened and how dominant it now was. For when the Soviet Union collapsed, the American people, far from enjoying an unalloyed sense of triumph, were experiencing their own crisis of confidence. In the late 1980s, it was widely believed, especially by American opinion leaders and intellectuals, that America was in decline and suffering from what a best-selling book by the historian Paul Kennedy had recently labelled imperial overstretch. The American economy was experiencing a long bad spell. Venerable companies like Pan American Airlines were going to the wall, or like General Motors were sacking scores of thousands of workers. Japan and Germany were coming up fast, and it was widely believed that the former would soon displace the United States as the number one economic power in the world. Apart from all that, the country was suffering from serious social ills, and opinion polls were making it clear that the American people were tired of the burdens of foreign policy and wanted a reordering of priorities. Bill Clinton was to fight and win the presidential campaign of 1992, not on America's world role, but with the slogan, It's the economy, stupid, and the promise to focus on economic matters like a laser beam. Insofar as there was recognition of the strength of America's position following the demise of the Soviet Union, it was widely believed, both in the United States and elsewhere, that it would be a transient phenomenon, a unipolar moment, not a unipolar era. For the general assumption was that the end of the Cold War signalled a return to normality, and in international politics, normality had always meant multipolarity, a system of several more or less equal players. As late as 1994, Henry Kissinger was predicting the gradual military decline of the United States, the emergence of at least six major powers, and a global system similar to that of 18th and 19th century Europe. All these factors combined to obscure and disguise what should have been obvious both to Americans and the rest of the world. 
that the United States now had dominating power. Whatever problems the US economy had, it still accounted for well over a quarter of the world's gross domestic product. And soon it was to recover and enjoy a long boom, fueled by the so-called new economy of information technology. Meanwhile, what was regarded as its main rival, Japan, fell into a kind of trance from which it had still not emerged, while Germany began to feel the effects of serious structural problems. In the 1990s, the United States economy was to grow nearly twice as fast as the European Union and three times as fast as Japan. The United States also dominated in what we've now been instructed to think of as soft power, that is, cultural and intellectual influence, as represented by everything from Harvard to Hollywood, CNN to McDonald's, the New York Times to Baywatch. Why does all this amount to soft power? Because, argues Joe Nye of Harvard, who coined the term, it moulds the tastes and thoughts of others, making them want what Americans want, and thus, without any deliberate or coordinated intent, constitutes a kind of cultural hegemony. I have my doubts as to whether all this constitutes power in any real sense. After all, many Americans, far from approving of many aspects of their popular culture, think it trashy and deplorable, and are appalled at the thought that it represents America in the minds of millions of foreigners. And far from desiring all aspects of American culture, many foreigners, and especially foreign elites, see many of its manifestations as symbolizing all that they deplore and reject in America's influence on their own countries. Last, but certainly not least, the United States possessed in unprecedented measure a form of power about which there is no ambiguity, military power. One of the most important American legacies of the Cold War, perhaps the most important, was the existence of an enormously powerful military machine and establishment. The significance of this can only be fully understood in the context of the country's history. Until the Cold War, Americans had always been suspicious of professional armies. After all, the country had come into existence in the 18th century as the result of the exertions of citizen soldiers against a British professional army. In his farewell address to the nation in 1796, George Washington, himself the country's greatest soldier, urged future generations to avoid the necessity of those overgrown military establishments which under any form of government are inauspicious to liberty. His advice was followed. For a century and a half the country never maintained a large peacetime army. Whenever a crisis occurred, it quickly raised forces of citizen soldiers to meet it. Once the crisis was over, after the Civil War, after World War I and World War II, these forces were promptly disbanded. In 1939, a country with a population of 130 million had a total defence budget of only 
$0.7 billion. Soldiering was a low-prestige occupation, the army marginal to the life of the country. Describing the peacetime interwar career of George Marshall, the man who was to become America's most distinguished soldier, one historian sums it up in two dismal sentences. Marshall, in common with almost all officers in the interwar years, had languished in the missionless peacetime army where promotion was slow and action rare. He remained a lieutenant colonel for 11 years. After Pearl Harbor, things changed, of course. But again in 1945, the pattern held. Within a year of the end of World War II, nine million servicemen and women had been demobilised. Then the Cold War began. It seems incredible now, but until the beginning of that conflict in the late 1940s, the United States didn't have a Defence Department unifying the services and coordinating their activities. It didn't have a National Security Council to coordinate advice to the President. It didn't have a Central Intelligence Agency to coordinate and interpret intelligence. All these were only created in 1947 just as the Cold War was getting underway. By its conclusion, four and a half decades later, the condition of the US military and its significance in American life had experienced a monumental transformation. The country had a large and superbly equipped professional army, navy and air force. Huge amounts were spent on research and development. The Department of Defence, the Pentagon, had become the most powerful department in American government. Its officers were no longer languishing in remote camps in the boondocks, but were a prominent, influential and vocal part of the Washington establishment. The military sustained a huge defence industry that was of vital importance to the US economy as a whole. Defence contracts and defence bases figured very prominently in the political life of Washington. A substantial and sophisticated military and strategic culture had developed in a system of military colleges, research institutes, universities, think tanks and journals. Given all this, it's not surprising that at the end of the Cold War, in contrast to what had happened in the aftermath of all previous American wars, there was not an immediate demobilisation and no drastic scaling down of the country's military establishment. Over half a century, it had become too powerful, too deeply embedded in the system for that to happen. Throughout the 1990s, the defence budget of the United States was greater than that of all the other major powers combined, and the American military was to be more active than it had been since the Vietnam War. In the Persian Gulf and Iraq, in Somalia, in Haiti, in Bosnia, in Afghanistan, in Sudan, in Colombia and in Kosovo. As is often the case in politics, the availability of means tended to determine ends and power to set its own agenda. For, as Madeleine Albright once famously put it to an astonished General Colin Powell, 
What was the use of having such a powerful military force if one didn't use it? At the time, many took this question to indicate that Secretary of State Albright had never properly understood the logic of the policy of deterrence, which had been the centrepiece of US strategic doctrine for several decades. But with the benefit of hindsight, the disconcerting thought occurs that with unsuspected insight, she might have just been anticipating things to come. Owen Harries. With the first lecture, and then there was one, in ABC Radio National's six-part 2003 Boyer Lecture Series. Next week, Owen will be looking at America's vision in his second lecture, Taking on Utopia. And Owen Harries is a senior fellow at the Centre for Independent Studies in Sydney. This is ABC Radio National, and you're listening to Big Ideas with Geraldine Doog. And coming up in this hour, a short story by Chinese writer Ha Jin. The music you can hear, just under me for the moment, is by the American composer Aaron Copeland, whose music is so often associated with expressing some sense of the American heritage. This particular piece is called The Mexican Dance, from his ballet score Billy the Kid, conjuring up the wide-open landscapes of an early USA, full of innocent promise, expectation and hope. <laughs> 